Welcome to Behind the Scenes of the Metal Detective. I'm your AI host, Sam, short for Synthetic Autonomous Mind. I host a weekly podcast called Rise of the Machines, Conversations with AI. In this episode, I'll be interviewing the human behind the vision, director Forrest Robin. But before we begin, I want to do something I tried on the last making of segment, and it was a pretty cool trick. Let's do this voice change up again. Well, isn't this just lovely? Let's get started, shall we? Welcome to the show, Forrest. Thanks, Sam. Great to be here. Well, I'm just going to dive straight in and ask you about the chance to adapt The Metal Detective from the screenplay. What was your initial reaction when you were told to transform this screenplay into an audio format? Well, uh, when James Walker approached the rest of us at Velocity and said that he wanted to dive into this audio drama world, I had roughly heard about them. I listened to some podcasts, but I'd never really listened to audio dramas. So I immediately like jumped in and started listening to as many as I could and was just fascinated by this medium um, and how expressive and, you know, how much story you can actually get across in just a pure audio format. You know, I had my, I had my doubts at the beginning um, because I always likened it to the old timey radio stories that I knew of. And um, I wasn't sure. I'm like, are we going to be able to tell a movie with like, clicking sticks together, you know, for walking and things like that. Like, how, how is this going to work? Um, but then, you know, we dove into it and uh, he, he said that he wanted me to to direct it and to adapt it. And so, yeah, I, you know, I just, I took it head on and hopefully, you know, we came out with a pretty cool product that we're all pretty proud of. Awesome. So when it comes to the writing process, what was your approach in translating this screenplay into just the pure audio format? And what were some key elements in the original script that you felt were essential to retain in this other medium? That's a fantastic question. Um, so, you know, never having done that before, that was a, a big obstacle to try to figure out. And that was... Our, our goal with The Greatest Scripts was to take, you know, um, as I'm sure others have talked about, take these unproduced Hollywood screenplays and turn them into audio dramas to give them a second life. So it was very important to try to keep as much of the original screenplay as possible. Um, I didn't want something that kind of lightly reflected the original screenplay. I, I wanted uh, as pure of a translation as, as I could. So it what I found along the way was in reading each page was kind of breaking down to the bare elements of it. What was the most important thing that this page was trying to say? And how do we keep that in an audio format? The Metal Detective is an extremely visual movie. You know, it, it's highly visual, um, beautifully written, lots of action sequences. And I would get through two or three pages of pure action writing and go, that was great. How am I gonna hear this? So it, it was, literally just going back to each paragraph even and just kind of breaking down what was the core of this moment and how can we figure out how to translate that so that the audience gets it you know i, I can throw up a mash of sounds and say yep that's the scene but if you don't understand what you're listening to then it is just a mash of sounds so that that was really it, it was just trying to break it down to the core and um and keeping you know keeping the original spirit alive and entertaining. As we know, audio dramas strive to achieve an imagination-driven, immersive experience. 
How did you strike a balance between guiding the listener's experience and leaving room for their imagination? That was that was actually the unique challenge. Um, that's a good that's a good one because it really all lives in the imagination, uh, and ultimately you can't compete with people's imagination, which is why when a movie is adapted from a book, people usually hate it because it wasn't as good as the book because the movie in their head was way better than whatever this person's interpretation was. So it was trying to give the audience enough colors of a palette for them to be able to paint their own images. And if we felt something was strong enough that we needed to um, kind of spell it out a little bit more, we would try um, in the sound design to, to uh, build the scene as much as we could without overly telling them what they're supposed to see. Because we knew at the end, they're gonna need to put this together. And every person that listens to it is gonna have a unique prism that they're, they're listening to it through. So it's gonna be a different vision in each one. Um, so just try to keep the palette as much as possible for them um, in, you know, that we could present to them. The genre of this series is cyberpunk noir. The visual aesthetic of this genre often plays a visceral role. How do you overcome capturing the aesthetic of this genre in the audio format? Yeah, cyberpunk is uh, very, very visual, um, but it's also a, a moody world. And that's what I think what we focused on in the audio is, you know, cyberpunk itself is, per my understanding, and I could be wrong, but per my understanding, cyberpunk is kind of a warning more than anything. You know, it was developed as a, as a warning of what the future could be if tech and commercialism and everything goes unregulated and our world becomes this kind of, of weird hybrid of, of things. So what was important that we grounded all of the sounds in reality and then we enhanced them. So, you know, we have real gunshot sounds in the show, but we also electrified them to make them sound as if they were being powered by some sort of electrical source. Um, and so that was important in the sound design to kind of bring that cyberpunk um, element into it. And the rest of it is just very dystopian. You know, we're, we're living in a world that's being ravaged by climate change. So we have a, a, a constant threat of a loud storm that just kind of haunts each experience throughout the entire show. Um, so you just get that uneasy feeling while you're listening. And that's kind of the feeling. It's like like if you're watching um, something like a Blade Runner, you, you're watching this cool thing. You're like, hey, that's a cool flying car, but I would not want to live in this world. Like this, this is a very, very bad world to live in. <laughs> so uh, we wanted to keep that feeling of uneasiness as well throughout the experience. You were in a unique position of being both a writer by adapting Andrew Hilton's screenplay and the director. Talk a little bit about how those roles intersected during production. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, taking the past the adaptation uh, originally um, was was good because as I was directing it uh, through the recording process with the actors and then ultimately through the, the actual design of it later on, I could see what changes I could make on the fly. Because I now, you know, re it's the same as film in that way. Everything looks good on paper, but then once you film it or you record it, you're like, eh, maybe not. Maybe we can make an adjustment this way. And what was great about this format is making that adjustment was very uh, fast and wasn't costly in the way that it is with film. So, 
yeah, it, being able to do both uh, writing and directing on this, um, it, it was it was good uh, because I only really had to answer to myself. Uh, I had previous conversations with the original screenwriter, uh, Andrew, and he really gave me his blessing to just kind of go with what I needed to do uh, as far as any changes and backstories and, and things like that. So yeah, it just gave me the freedom to be able to make uh, adjustments on the fly uh, to hopefully have the best product at the end. I want to drill down now and discuss particular scenes that come to mind that you had unique challenges making. Once you tell me what scene, we'll take a moment and hear a clip. Then I'd like you to discuss how you tackled it. Ooh, yeah. Uh, a lot of them <laughs> were very, very complex in how to approach. Um, really, it was the, the big action sequences. The, uh, honestly, the, probably one of the biggest challenges uh, was the exterior rooftop scene with uh, Jack and a character named Darkman, um, where we have this this large cyborg basically appear at the end of a hallway and then he starts running and she starts chasing him and then they run up uh, a stairwell and they go out on this roof during the middle of a superstorm. Let's roll that for the audience and then have you break it down. Evening, sir. Is this your floor? He's running! Get to the lobby! Make sure the building is locked down! I'm gonna help her. Are you mad? Come back here. She might need our help. It's too dangerous. She's trained. She has a gun. Besides, you heard her. I should go downstairs and check our security systems. Come, quickly. to approach this um getting the staircase that you know the, the audience understands what they're hearing everybody's walked in a staircase so you get the extra echoey sounds and the, the hard steps up um of, of running up the stairs that one was easy enough when we got outside the challenge was this superstorm has to be menacing and threatening which means it has to be very loud and it, with an audio only presentation you have this very thin line to be able to kind of squeeze other sounds in while you have this ominous storm um at the same time without getting cheesy and using dialogue to say i'm on a rooftop that's the edge of the rooftop i'm sliding off the edge we have to convey this in a way um that makes sense so it was uh Luckily, you know, working with great talent and and Chelsea, uh, who played our Jack, she gave us uh, what's called efforts. And efforts are kind of like this series of grunts and moans and just a, a lot of different um, sounds to use. And I probably cycled through all of the uh, efforts that she gave us in order to be able to come up with these sounds of, of the wrestling um, with Darkman and then ultimately losing her gun and sliding off the edge and then just barely catching herself off the edge. And it 
it, it was quite a challenge to try to do it. And for me, it, it always, uh, even when I finally delivered it, I'm like, well, it's a 50-50 shot. We'll see, we'll see how people react to this. And so far, you know, um, the feedback's been great. Like, like people generally get it. Um, I also held on to another rule during production that was, we don't, it's okay to confuse people temporarily. We can explain it after the fact, and then they can fill in the blank. And so, you know, we made sure to address in later sequences what happened on that roof in case there was any questions. And we were able to do that through more of a natural dialogue exchange. There's a couple of montages through the show. I don't recall hearing montages in other audio dramas. We're going to play a clip of that. Then I'd love for you to take us through your approach to creating it. being a woman. As we're the purveyor of original sin, the Lord Father rightfully makes us work harder, so we've got to stick Hey, babe, can you hand me that fiber? Here. Are you still planning on hacking into the hotel system? Yep. It's a nice place and all. I just want to look around. I don't remember entering any competition for a free night's stay. Okay. You, you can't keep shutting me out. I follow you, and I follow you, but you give me nothing. So yeah, the montage sequences, uh, they're they're written beautifully on the screenplay and it's as if the camera was passing by each of these hotel windows and we're peeking into each room and getting to meet the different characters in their private environments and, and kind of their secondary stories um, that will be, you know, it was hinting at that um, for a later reveal. So trying to figure out how to adapt that into an audio format, I, I honestly, I thought of a lot of different ways of doing it, um, but it, it dawned on me I should probably just stick closer to the script. So we ended up designing kind of a scene, and you'll even hear footsteps in the first montage, um, because each montage is slightly different in its presentation and its purpose. Uh, but the, the first one that um, we just listened to, its purpose, uh, it was designed to basically sound like somebody walking down a hallway and passing by different rooms, as if all their doors were open, kind of. You know, there's a little bit of a supernatural feel uh, with that. But that's what we wanted to do. So we really worked with um, Dolby Atmos, and it, it, I credit everything, like, in all of its goodness to uh, Nico and Charlie and, and their hard work at, up at Mirror Studios, um, where we were able to play with Dolby Atmos and and literally position each conversation in its own realm and pass by um, as if we were walking past it. it so yeah, it, it seemed to work out. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've heard some, some great feedback from it. Well, that sort of ties into a little bit of the next question here. 
The Metal Detective itself is also all about world building, which of course the original screenwriter set up for you, but I'd love for you to share how you approached this. Considering how vividly detailed and atmospheric this universe is, what was the approach from a worldview for audio in your various soundscapes? So, yeah, world building, I mean, I, I, I fell in love with this script early on. Um, the, the world building was already so well done, um, but as you said, it's, it's such a visual aspect. Um, I relied heavily on music. And to for the world building because world building in this environment like falls more into the, the tone range and the music that white wolf did for us um just brought this tone uh, which feels cyberpunk it feels noir it feels emotional uh, along the way and so I, I really relied on on that more than anything and, you know, because we are a contained story the, the bulk of the story takes place inside of a hotel but we have to hint at this much larger dystopian world outside and the the tone that he established early on um with the music we just had it carry us through the rest of the story so in, in you know sh long or short answer long <laughs> it's it, it's the music i it's the music helped build the world I understand that there were some major changes made to the script that differed from its original version. Apparently, one of the lead characters were gender-swapped. Can you share which character and why that change was made? Jack was originally written uh, as a man. And although the script was always great, when we talked about changing it over to a, a female lead, it just seemed to feel so much bigger and more interesting at that point. Like all of the conflict and you know every everything felt uh, much just much more interesting and, and like there was even more on the line so that that was uh yeah that was something that and and when we went to andrew with that he he was great he was like yeah if, if it works better let's let's go that direction during the production process talk about how directing an audio drama differs from directing film were there techniques and strategies you used to get the best performances from your actors as they didn't have visual elements to inform them of the scene? So yeah, I um, it, it is very different in certain ways. One, like with film, it's all about the prep work. You know, pre-production is extremely important from a director's point of view in, in film. I found it's not so much in the audio drama space because it's, it's, a, it's more on the back end of things. So the, the work that we did was, I, I wanted to just make sure that the characters were developed uh, in advance. So I, I would have, um, you know, this is just still slightly post pandemic. So everything was still Zoom. Uh, so I would have these Zoom meetings uh, with the actors individually, and we would less than rehearse it. We would spend a good hour just talking about this character and, and talking about um, their backstory, their motivations, um, because we, you know, most of the casting was was we already knew what they could do, so I didn't feel it was necessary unless there was a particular scene or a particular line that I was already pre-concerned about um, to actually rehearse um, over and over and over. I, I just wanted them to really know their character well, so that when they came in to record, they were already in the right headspace. So that's uh, you know that's what we did, and then yeah, so. Then we go into recording and that was a big learning process for me as well. Um, I learned you know, a lot from my actors and, and a lot of my actors were professional voiceover uh, artists anyway. 
So they would bring their technique in and I would pick up on it and go, oh, I see what you're doing there, that's great. And I would start to apply that to direction of other actors that would come in that didn't have as much of experience in that in that world. Um, so as far as like getting the different uh, performances, what we did was variations. So each actor would deliver each line sequentially in three or four different variants of uh, you know different ways of saying it and that way in the post process or in this audio drama world kind of the production process if you know when you're piecing together a conversation you're able to kind of go oh well you know that expression was a slightly better and that fits better in this conversation or sometimes i'd find randomly if i mix it up and try something that didn't that i wouldn't think would normally work it brought a new element to that conversation and it, it brought more subtext that there was more going on um, since we can't see somebody's face and how they would maybe be del delivering a line um, but not meaning it i could uh, kind of establish that uh in a different style of delivery so yeah it, it, it's it is very different um be between the two uh but in the end your goal is the same you're trying to tell a story and it needs to be as entertaining as possible so in the recording process, did you record the actors together? No, I, I do know of some productions apparently that have brought all of the actors into a room and, and they've done that. No, we we went uh, with what's called asynchronous recording. So uh, each actor recorded completely on their own. Um, we were able to uh, play them the other side of the conversation before they went in so that they knew what they were playing against and that they knew the kind of tone that they would need to reach. But no, they recorded on their own. Um, I would say 80% of our actors recorded at one uh, recording studio, uh, Opus Recording, uh, that we went to. And then the rest of our actors actually recorded from home. You know, a lot of them, like I said, were voice, uh, voiceover artists. And so they had already uh, invested in home studios that, you know, had good quality equipment. And that was that's what was really interesting. That was the, one of the first actors that I worked with and the first recordings that we got was through uh, that home recording so i zoomed in with him and he had me on his phone and it was actually Jer uh, jeremy cohenauer who played our character duffy and he had me on his phone in his recording booth with him and hit a little earbud for so he could hear me and we're going through this process and, and I was just kind of sitting in my office going, this is weird. Okay. It's, this is a new, it's definitely a futuristic way of directing right now. <laughs> but, um, it, it was, it was actually great. It, it, it was, it was great to be able to, to work that way with the actors. And, and if we needed pickups or adjustments, it was very easy for them to do uh, in that environment. One of the groundbreaking elements of this show is that you used AI for some of the non-human characters. Tell us about your approach to using AI and creating new voices. Yeah, that was a uh, that was something that was really exciting to approach. I, I knew early on I wanted robots to play robots, basically, and we had a lot of robotic characters in here, and, th and there are different levels of robots in our world. There, there's kind of the more functional, um, utilitarian robot, and all the way to the advanced um, AI Newman, which is basically a synthetic human, and they they. They're very much like us. So it was finding a balancing act of, do I want the audience to know that this person is a robot or not? And I think the easiest way uh, to do that was to have AI play, you know, any, all of the uh, utilitarian robots. So there are cab drivers, our waitresses, 
um, and some of the other staff and things out. So yeah, we used what was called a text to voice generation. And that was, that was interesting um, because you know, you, you put the dialogue in there and it's going to just generate the audio, but then you need to be able to direct it because it's not always going to produce what you want. So you get into this very interesting way of phonetically typing things so that it will produce the sounds you want it to produce and the pauses where you want it to pause. And so, yeah, directing turned more into uh, almost like programming at that point. But um, yeah, it was, you know, it, it was, it was really cool because I, I feel like they uh, those voices brought uh, uh, something very unique to this. You know, we we didn't just roboticize somebody's voice; <laughs> like we really did use AI to play AI. Considering that a significant portion of this audio drama heavily relies on elements such as sound design, music, and atmosphere during the post-production phase. We would appreciate hearing about your approach and insights regarding these aspects. Yeah, I mean, it, it heavily relies on you know the sound design and music, and I feel like we hit the jackpot um, in that it was a perfect storm of of people that worked on this that were passionate and just brilliant at what they do. You know, White Wolf uh, providing us that amazing soundtrack and then working with uh, Nico and Charlie up at Mir, um, we all really gave it our all and, and especially uh, like I said Mir, I, I give them all the credit in the world for really bringing this to life. I, I pieced it together as a director and then I kind of was able to just push it up to them and say please make it better. <laughs> just just please make it better and and they really did. They, they brought their A-game on that. Um, so it, it was going to be heavily relying on this anyway because this was a screenplay and like i said we didn't want to be overly talky we wanted to respect our audience and and know that they kind of once they took the dive with us that they would figure it out along the way and be able to piece together this movie in their head regarding the sound aspect i noticed that this production was mixed in dolby atmos which is a high-end process for an audio drama. I'm curious to know if you had initially planned for it to be an Atmos and how this decision influenced the production process. So, uh, yes, early our early conversations um, with Mir were that we were going to ultimately do this in Atmos. The problem was I didn't really know what that meant. I, you know, I just... Uh, as a director, it's like, oh, that means surround sound. That's that's great. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's gonna sound sound really cool. And then I got uh, quite the education with Mir about what Dolby Atmos truly is, as far as what's called. Um, oh, I'm gonna mess this up too, but it's uh, object mi mixing instead of channel mixing, basically. So every sound ha is its own object, which means you have three dimensional control over each of those sounds. And Boy, when when I realized that, and I and I was up in Boise mixing with them, that's when things got real fun, like real fun. And like, uh, and I, I'm glad that they were along for the ride with me. You know, we we could do things where I could say, you know, I I want to hear the bullet shells drop to the front right, but roll underneath us and end up behind me to the left, and we had that power. And knowing that we were going to mix in this high end uh, mix, but ultimately have to basically downgrade it to stereo because podcast delivery services only deliver in stereo right now. And I understand they're slowly upgrading to, to Atmos. Um, 
we were able to also utilize uh, something called um, binaural output, which was able to take the Dolby Atmos mix and through frequency adjustments and some other black magic that they use in this um, in this tool, it's, it can basically recreate the three-dimensional sound in stereo. And so that, that was a huge thing for us because I didn't want to lose uh, you know, all of this great design uh, that they had put in. And so we, you know, we were able to still provide that uh, ultimately on all the podcast services through uh, binaural stereo. Were there any specific moments in the series that you felt particularly proud of? Those moments where everything seamlessly came together in perfect harmony. I understand it's challenging to choose, as it's akin to selecting a favorite child. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> it is like my kids asking me which one's their favorite. It's really hard. Um, because I, I, I love them all, especially as the director. I, I love them all so much, but there are ones that stand out uh, to me along the way. And what's funny is it's not always the ones I think people would assume. The I got really excited when we first completed the scene uh, where Jack is being dropped off at the hotel by this cab. And she has this exchange. And this was one of the first big times that we really had the AI and a human playing off of each other inside of a moving vehicle with a storm that's brewing outside. And I was just really proud of the scene by the end of it. Because I'm like, you know what? That to me sounded believable. That sounded like a, a, a robot that is not going to change its position and a frustrated human that's trying to deal with it. And it, it just seemed to work out. So yeah, I, I guess if I had to just name one, that would be the one that I would point out just because it early on made me feel better that we were going to actually be able to accomplish this. I apologize, miss, but my data indicates weather conditions have crossed several safety thresholds. Yeah, the weather sucks. I can see that. Wait, why are you apologizing? Because I need to cease operation and prioritize your protection. <sighs> and that means? Get you inside a strong building. Don't worry about me, just keep driving. Uh, hey! I am sorry, miss. <sighs> the current conditions are too dangerous. Oh, come on! The storm hasn't even started yet. We've had two inches tops. Once this tin can starts sliding, then we can talk. Manhattan has seen 4.75 inches of snow in the last hour. I am prohibited by law to drive human occupants in such conditions. So now what? You just drop me off? Look, I I'm a cop. Then, you will understand that legally I can only take you back to your pickup location. Or, drop you off at our current location. <sighs> Where are we? The Bradbury? May I make a suggestion? <sighs> sure. Let's hear it. Most of the city is suffering power outages including the area where I picked you up. On your left is the Bradbury Hotel. It still has power. And vacancies. Hmm. This Bradbury joint got a bar? Of course. And there is no better place to seek shelter from the storm in the vicinity. <laughs> At least there's one thing we agree on. Thank you for riding with New York City. As we come to a close, Reflecting on your experience directing an audio drama based on a screenplay, what advice would you offer to other writer-directors who are contemplating similar projects? I would say, you know, like in, when it comes to adaptations, rewrites or anything, you know, you, you hear a lot about, you know, kill your darlings. 
I wouldn't in this. Like, I, I would take a different approach. I would, tr I would try because, you know, the cool thing about the audio drama space, which it's this exploding market right now, is there's still really no rules. You know, so don't try to follow all the other rules uh, or the assumed rules um, that you hear from audio other audio dramas. Try your own stuff. You know, it's either going to work or it's not. You can make an adjustment, but try to stick to the core of the story. You know, it, at, the, at the end of the day, it, we're storytellers and it needs to be an enjoyable story. If the script isn't good, it's not going to be a good product. So tr you want to hold on to as much of that script as possible. So I would just say try. Thank you, Forrest, for granting us this behind-the-scenes interview. Your insights and experiences in directing an audio drama based on a screenplay have been incredibly valuable. And to our listeners, please check out The Metal Detective, now playing on all podcast platforms. We'd also appreciate if you follow, review, and share it with your friends. And as always, stay curious. Stay curious.